Hey guys, welcome back to the third episode of Novel Culture. Today, we will be talking about the Sherlock Holmes stories by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Rather than focusing on one particular novel, I will be discussing Sherlock Holmes as a series in order to better address some of the topics that do not show up in the first book, A Study in Scarlet, and the impact that the characters from this story have on modern pop culture. Let's start with a little background on Sherlock Holmes, John Watson, and the stories they star in. Sherlock Holmes is a fictional character created by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. He first appears in the story A Study in Scarlet, which was originally published in 1887. In A Study in Scarlet, we meet John Watson, a retired army doctor who serves during the Second Afghan War and returns home due to an injury he sustained during the Battle of Maywand. Watson is the narrator of these books and describes his experiences with his new roommate, Sherlock Holmes. As the stories progress, Watson opens his own medical practice. However, that does not keep him from participating in Sherlock's crime-fighting ways. Watson states early in the book that Sherlock claims to be a consulting detective, something that comes up in almost every single book. Sherlock uses his keen observation and deductive reasoning skills to help other people solve interesting and difficult cases. One of the main reasons I wanted to discuss Sherlock Holmes is because of how insanely popular Sherlock Holmes-inspired stories are in modern pop culture. There are over 250 screen adaptations featuring Sherlock Holmes and his lovable sidekick Watson. The fact that the majority of people can hear the name Sherlock Holmes and immediately have a picture in their head of an old-fashioned private detective who uses observation and deduction in order to solve cases shows how ingrained Sherlock Holmes is in our popular culture. Like Dracula by Bram Stoker, its influence surpasses the novel. Many people in our day and age have never read the original Sherlock Holmes stories. I know personally, until recently, I had only ever read two of the original nine stories featuring Sherlock and Watson, The Hounds of the Baskerville and The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Most fans know Sherlock Holmes from the big or little screen, The success of these types of stories can be seen in the numbers. Sherlock on BBC is listed as one of the BBC's most popular shows, with over 11.3 million viewers tuning in to watch the 90-minute premiere episode released on New Year's Day in 2017. An article released by The Guardian stated that the very last episode of Sherlock saw a huge drop in ratings, the only episode to have less than 7 million viewers. 5.9 million viewers is dropping in popularity. That just seems insane to me. The Sherlock Holmes movie that was released in 2009 starred big stars like Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law and made over $524 million in the box office. That's number 207 on the list of highest grossing movies of all time. Given, 207 seems relatively low, but this list has every movie ever made on it, and there are only about 20 movies on the list above it 
that were made before 2010. And this includes movies like Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Titanic, and Harry Potter. Enola Holmes was released in 2020, and it's a movie based on a book series by Nancy Springer, featuring a young female detective who is supposed to be Sherlock and Minecraft's little sister. Enola Holmes is inspired by the original Sherlock Holmes series, and the movie debuted on Netflix and immediately hit number two on the Netflix most watched content with over 76 million households streaming Enola Holmes within the first four weeks of its release. These are three examples of Sherlock Holmes, and we haven't even gone back to some of the most famous and popular versions of Sherlock Holmes from the past. Basil Rathbone played Sherlock Holmes in 14 movies in the late 1930s and 40s. And Peter Cushing starred in the Hounds of the Baskerville movie that came out in 1959, which to this day some argue is still the best Sherlock Holmes movie to ever be produced. There are so many examples of Sherlock Holmes on the screen to help me validate this point of how popular this character has been. I've only mentioned a few, but if you want to look some up, go for it. There are over 250, as I've said before, adaptations of Sherlock on screen. Before we move on, I want to discuss Sherlock Holmes' influence on London in particular. Throughout the story, we see a lot of real places inside of London. This has given readers a real connection to the city, along with the pride of having such a famous character who originated in London. This has led to Sherlock Holmes showing up in the most unlikely of places. 221B Baker Street, the house that Sherlock and Watson share in the stories, is a real place and has been converted into a full-on Sherlock Holmes museum, which first opened its doors in 1990. The rooms upstairs are set up to look as they would have in the late 1800s, mostly Victorian-era decor, and set up as closely to how they are described in the books as possible. On the ground floor is a gift shop, and each guest is greeted by a London bobby in full traditional uniform. The top floors have been converted into a wax museum with life-size waxworks of your favorite Sherlock characters. If you're traveling using the London Underground, make sure that you pay attention when you're in the Baker Street tube station. All around you, there are Sherlock-shaped tile work, some around the actual trains, some near the exits after you get out of the trains, but everywhere you look, there are different types of tile work, all in the shapes of Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes is so popular in the UK that there is a society that has been created in London called the Sherlock Holmes Society of London, which is a literary and social society for study of the life and works of Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. This society was founded in 1951 and is open to anyone with interest in Sherlock Holmes. 
The Society even has its own website with tons of information as well as publications and scholarly journals discussing different aspects of the Sherlock Holmes universe. One of my favorite features of the website is called the Gazetteer. It is essentially a society page that allows you to discover all of the important locations from the stories of Sherlock Holmes that are physically located inside of London. Uh, When you first go to the page, it's just a giant map, and then you can search for certain things so that you can go and look at them. You can search based on books or based on locations. Once you've made a selection, it gives you a little bit of information about what you're looking at, a map that has clearly labeled locations that you can visit, and little squares with pictures that you can click on and get more information about each location. When I was playing around with it, I looked at the Hounds of the Baskerville because that's one of my favorite Sherlock Holmes stories. And when it popped up, it showed me a list of some of the important places like Paddington Railroad Station, 45 Cavern Street, and the Waterloo Railway Station. The Sherlock Holmes Society is not the only group of Sherlock Holmes-loving individuals that have gathered. There's also the Baker Street Irregulars, based out of New York City, an organization that has been around since 1934 and was established by Christopher Morley. There's the Wisteria Lodgers in Edmonton, Canada, There's a host of groups in the UK, in Canada, in the United States. In Europe, there's the Baker Street Chronicle, the Baskerville Hall Club. In Asia, there's the Japan Sherlock Holmes Club, Sherlock Holmes Society of India. There are tons of societies like this throughout the world. People just really love these stories, and it has kind of brought out this fanatic in people. I found this website that just had a huge list of these societies. There were about 50 of them spanning the globe, not just in the United States and the United Kingdom. Quickly going back to the point that I made before about Sherlock Holmes' impact on popular culture. When I was younger, I was a huge anime and manga fan. And one of the series that really, really interested me was a series called Case Closed, or in some places it was also called Detective Conan. And it really is a Japanese detective series that has these little bits and pieces of Sherlock Holmes. It's really just about this detective who gets turned into a little kid, but he's still solving cases using observation and deductive reasoning the same way that Sherlock Holmes does. And his name is Conan, like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This really just illustrates my point that these stories have reached across continents and countries and has really influenced different types of people and the way that they have created pop culture over the last century. So let's switch gears here for a little bit and talk about the history of the mystery novel. Sherlock Holmes was not the first mystery novel ever published. However, he is the most notorious 
detective character that we've ever seen written about. There are others that come close who are very popular and have very large book series that have influenced modern pop culture in a significant way. You see this with books like The Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew, with Agatha Christie's famous detective Hercule Poirot, even with Sam Spade from The Maltese Falcon. Many people will argue that Agatha Christie's novels are just as famous as Sherlock. However, Agatha Christie's books have been translated the most of any literary titan having been translated into 103 different languages. In comparison, the Sherlock Holmes novels have been translated into 98 different languages. After doing some research, I found that the very first of the modern detective story to be published was published in April of 1841 in an issue of Graham's magazine, and it is the story, The Murders in the Rue Morgue, by Edgar Allan Poe. It took almost 20 years for another mystery novel to hit the press, and what came was The Woman in White by Wilkie Collins in 1859 and The Moonstone in 1868. Two others that beat Sherlock Holmes to the press were The Notting Hill Mysteries by an author under the pen name of Charles Felix, which was published in 1865, and a French mystery, Le Affaire Le Rouge, by Emile Gabriel, which was published in 1866 and is considered to be one of the pioneer detective novels. Funny enough, the main character in this French story and the main character from The Murders in the Rue Morgue by Edgar Allan Poe were both mentioned within the first couple of chapters of A Study in Scarlet. When Watson and Sherlock are first discussing Sherlock's title of consulting detective, Watson uses both of these men, literary characters, as examples of what he thinks Sherlock is trying to do. There were a couple other books that were published before Sherlock Holmes came out. However, none were really that notable, with the exception of The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which was published in 1886 by Robert Louis Stevenson. Although it is a mystery novel, a lot of people kind of see it as one of the classic monster stories. Um, or as a thriller rather than an actual classic mystery, especially since the main character himself is not really a detective like we're looking at in these other stories. After this, the next mystery series that takes off the same way that Sherlock Holmes does and has a huge influence on our modern pop culture would be the very first of the Agatha Christie novels, The Mysterious Affair at Styles, featuring and debuting our eccentric Belgian detective, Hercule Poirot. Our love for crime and mystery novels has grown exponentially. If you search for mystery or crime in Goodreads, you get 
5.7 million options for mystery books and 1.7 million options for crime novels. And this isn't even taking into consideration of books that are under different things, such as mystery thrillers or murder mystery books, or even just suspense or thriller. We love solving crimes. You can see it in our pop culture everywhere. Detective shows, movies, mysteries, even mystery theater. People like to engage with what they're reading and what they're watching, and they like the chance to guess who did it. This is something that evolved with our exposure to novels like Sherlock Holmes. Let's take a bit to talk a little bit more about the author. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was born on May 22nd, 1859, to an affluent family in Edinburgh, Scotland. Throughout my research, I learned that his father seemed to be an alcoholic with very few accomplishments, and his mother was a well-educated woman who was very well-read. From what I read, Doyle had said that his mother loved to tell outlandish stories to him, and that at some point, those stories tend to feel so vivid that they would kind of obscure what was real life and what was fiction. At the age of nine, he was sent to England to a prep school, and he attended there from 1868 until 1870. The next five years, he attended Stonyhurst College. In many of the articles I read, the authors mentioned that Doyle said that his boarding school experience was brutal and that many of his classmates bullied him and the school practiced ruthless corporal punishment against its students. After he graduated in 1876, he decided to pursue a medical degree at the University of Edinburgh. While attending college there, he met his mentor and a professor, Dr. Joseph Bell, who seems to be the main inspiration for his fictional character Sherlock Holmes. He is said to have a keen sense of observation and values deductive reasoning. By all accounts, the real-life Sherlock Holmes was always meant to be Dr. Joseph Bell. Doyle seemed lucky enough to meet many aspiring and future authors throughout his time at school and in his life, meeting authors such as James Barry, Robert Louis Stevenson, and even Oscar Wilde. During his third year of medical school, Doyle left in order to take a ship surgeon's post on a whaling ship. However, in 1880, he returns to medical school, However, this is at the point in his life where he becomes increasingly infested in spiritualism. For those of you who don't know what spiritualism is, spiritualism is a religious movement based on the belief that the spirits of the dead exist and have both the ability and the inclination to communicate with the living. This movement began around 1848 and lasted well into the early 20th century. It was also very popular in the United States and in the UK and had some very prominent members of its own community. 
If you're interested in learning more about spiritualism, I would say check out the podcast Unobscured by Aaron Mankey. The second season, he does a deep dive into spiritualism, and the entire season focuses on this. Each episode walks you through spiritualism from the early 1840s all the way through until the early 1900s. The most important thing to remember is that the spiritualism movement really showed itself with people who said they were mediums or clairvoyant. They would hold seances and try to speak to the dead. They would practice spiritual healing using techniques like magnetism and hypnotism. This was a very large movement, and there were some very famous people that were part of this movement. In the United States, spiritualism tended to go hand-in-hand with a lot of the political movements that were happening at the time. It ended up standing for a type of progression, moving forward, and freedom from different people. Many of the abolitionists, the reformers, and the advocates for women's rights were part of the spiritualist movement. Going back to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, after he graduated in the 1880s, he took a job as a medical officer aboard a steamship traveling from Liverpool to Africa. As the years progressed and Doyle continued working as a medical professional, he struggled to make it as a writer. In 1885, he met his wife and they had two children. In 1893, his wife was diagnosed with tuberculosis, and in 1906, she ultimately died. He later remarried and had three more children. Eventually, he publishes his first book in 1887. Following this book, he writes a series of autobiographical books, as well as some other Sherlock Holmes stories. After finding success as a writer, he finally quits his medical career right in the beginning of the 1900s and continues his life as a famous author. We can see how big parts of his life made it into his writing. Sherlock is based off of a person that he knew in medical school, someone he looked up to who had the personality traits that we as the reader see in Sherlock Holmes. Watson, the assistant and narrator of the book, is a lot like him, a working medical professional who is striving for more. In his case, he wants to be a writer. However, he is getting bored with how stagnant his life has become because of the things he has to overcome in his life. He doesn't do well with loud noises or with big fights or with a lot going on. He's in an area where he doesn't have any friends. And so the addition of Sherlock into his life kind of brings him something to focus on. And as the stories progress, he becomes more and more involved with Sherlock and the mysteries that Sherlock is solving. All right, let's move on to talk a little bit about what we can tell about London through the stories. Because of the way that 
Conan Doyle describes London in the books and through the characters' perspectives, there's really a lot that we can learn about London in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Conan Doyle only lived in London for a few months. However, he traveled there frequently, and you can see this in the way that he describes London and in the fact that he uses very specific locations when he's telling us where we are so that the locals can identify what parts of the city he's talking about. One of the things that you can see through the way that Doyle describes his surrounding is how bad the air quality at the time that this book is written is in London. And this obviously has to do with the fact that coal is what fuels everything. So you've got this coal-fueled fog that shrouds the majority of the of London and of his stories. And he specifically says this in a couple of his books. Uh, he says, quote, Mud-colored clouds drooped sadly over the muddy streets in The Sign of Four. He also says, quote, Down the strands the lamps were but misty splotches of diffused light which threw a feeble circular glimmer upon the slimy pavement. He's very creative with the words that he uses to describe the kind of murky, gloomy, atmosphere that you get in London at this time because of how much coal is being used to fuel everything. This stops in 1956 after the institution of the London Clean Air Act, which put in place some controls against air pollution. These controls were important because in 1952 in London, there was a cloud of fog and pollution that covered the, all of London for five days and killed over 12,000 people. To a lot of people, London felt like the center of the world at this point in time. And you can see this belief in Conan Doyle based on the way he describes London. London is where the decisions are made. It's where the House of Parliament is. It's where the soldiers dock after they finish and there are hostels for them to stay in. It's where the railway stations all converge. It felt and it was the literary center of the world at the time. And you can see that Conan Doyle felt that way by how much affection he writes into his stories when he talks about the different places and the different things that he's seeing in London. The last thing that I really want to talk about is drug use in Victorian England. In a lot of Victorian literature, they talk about these opium dens and it kind of exaggerates them and talks about how uh, dirty and terrible and dark these places were. And in reality, there were some, and they tended to be on the east end of London, where there would also be backstreet pubs and brothels. Um, and these dens mainly catered towards men who became addicted to drugs overseas and then came home and needed their fix. 
But the thing that I really want to talk about, because it is actually mentioned in part of the story, is cocaine use in Victorian England and in the Victorian era in general. Because in the 19th century, cocaine was used as a medicine, kind of as a wonder drug for many different things. They used it to remedy seasickness, hay fever, congestion. They even used it as an anesthesia drug during surgery. Cocaine use comes up very early in these stories. Showing up in The Sign of Four, the second Sherlock Holmes story, within the first page. The very first scene is Watson observing Holmes using cocaine. And the way that Doyle writes cocaine, you can see that it kind of ends up representing this triumph of medical technology. Because Doyle was a trained medical doctor, and the idea and ability to use such an interesting drug in so many ways was triumphant, essentially, to him. Even in newspapers, reviewers talked about how the idea of cocaine, this medical wonder drug, was the ideal fit for this Superman crime solver. This was also a drug that was readily available and made present for a lot of people. I mentioned earlier that it was used for seasickness, hay fever, congestion, but they also made cocaine sprays small enough to be carried in the waistcoat pocket. It seems fitting that you would see recreational drug use, especially with cocaine in these novels, almost brushed away as something that was very commonplace. And it's because at the time, cocaine wasn't an illegal substance. It was used as medicine. It was very common and people used it. This is also a really important thing to talk about because it says a lot about London culture at the time. In Victorian era, most Victorians were poor and life was really hard for them. And because of that, drugs and medicine were vital to their survival. And chemists, which are pharmacists at the time or in the UK, were available for free and doctors weren't. So a lot of Victorians got their drugs over the counter without a prescription to avoid having to go to see a doctor. This means that cocaine was given out more often than you would expect it to be because it was used for so many purposes and it also helped to appease hunger and thirst as well as relieve sickness. And so giving it to these poor people helped them to survive their lives. This was also a time where there was a serious scientific culture that was developing in the UK. And because of this, you see a lot of experimental drugs being used and using drugs that they see working for multiple different things, which is another reason why you get such high cocaine use. One of the articles I read made a very interesting point that I really wanted to share with you. It says, quote, 
It is no accident that drugs and Victorian culture are intertwined with the emergence of detective literature. Opium and cocaine, like detection, holds the power to trace back and uncover our darkest motives. Sometimes these drugs are portrayed as crimes, accomplices to murder, but they are also portrayed as a liberation, a fight against the boredom of respectability. Victorian writing anticipates our thoughts about what drugs can do to us, end quote. This quote is from an article called Drugs in Victorian Britain, written by Louise Crane. Well, that's all I have for you today. I really hoped you liked this episode. If you are looking for more info on anything discussed in today's episode, take a look at our Tumblr page, at Novel Culture Podcast. Every episode will have some supplementary materials researched and written by me on our Tumblr page. Most of them don't go up the same day as the episode, so check back sometime this week because each day I'll post something new. We are also on Instagram at Novel Culture Podcast and Twitter at Novel Culture Pod. Just search for Novel Culture Podcast. I would love to hear from you. Leave a comment on any of our social media pages. Tell me what you liked, what you disliked, what I got wrong, or just send me some love. I would also love to hear from you if you have any suggestions for future episodes. My hope is that season three will be filled with listener-suggested books. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts or a platform that supports reviewing and liked the show, please leave us a review. This makes it easier for others to find the podcast and start listening. I hope you join us next time for our interview with author Joe Lee Sue Burkhart.